Good morning, everybody. I'd like to welcome you to Grand Rounds this morning. Um, this is a Grand Round sponsored by the Department of Medicine and the Section of Emergency Medicine. And I'd like to take the opportunity, um, timely opportunity, to to thank Dr. Scott Rohde for his many years of service as Section Chief. Um, he will be stepping down from that role in just a couple of weeks. Um, I'll also take that opportunity uh, to uh, welcome uh, Todd Morrell, who will soon be the Section Chief of Emergency Medicine and is an assistant professor at the Geisel School of Medicine. He's going to introduce today's speaker. Thank you. So, Dr. Hoffman, uh, who traveled out here to help with our CREST symposium uh, that was conducted yesterday, uh, is also kind enough to spend the morning with us here. Uh, Dr. Hoffman is a professor emeritus at UCLA. He taught there um, in the School of Medicine, the School of Public Health, as well as in the Robert Wood Johnson Scholars, uh, Clinical Scholars Program for 30 years at all levels. He has over 200 articles and chapters to his credit. He has funding from the NIH, uh, ACN, AR, sorry, uh, from uh, NCI, from AHRQ, and, um, and also from CDCP. He um, uh, has won teaching awards from, the, uh, uh, from UCLA, from the American College of Emergency Physicians, from the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine, very broadly, although the best conversations that you can have with him uh, would be about his adventures and misadventures on sabbatical. He has had the opportunities for four, and they've included Cambridge, in Paris, in Tokyo, as well as in Santiago. So thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I hope I don't need a... Is, do I need a, microscope, a microphone? Can you hear me? Uh, oh, okay. Then I guess I do. We, we, we got too involved with social activity. I right. I, I don't know about these things very well. I've had a lot of microphones placed on me, but I don't. You can put that in your pocket. Or? Super. Yes. And I, I assume this is a pointer? That... Yes. Um, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I apologize, I have slides. We can keep the lights up because um, there's not, you'll see that there's nothing arcane about these slides. They're a little bit different. I, I almost never use slides, which I know is unusual in medicine, but I'd rather we all talk to each other, and I hope that we'll spend this hour speaking with each other and not me not just preaching at you. This is a topic that's dear to my heart about how we think, and I have to make a disclaimer right at the start that this, like, most things, this is just a model. This isn't really the truth, and this sort of oversimplifies the process whereby we make clinical decisions. And I'm mostly interested in diagnostic decisions here, although everything I say is going to be relevant to all of the things that we do. Um, and I, uh, so, um, the last thing I'll just say in, in, in preface is that I'm going to be talking about a sort of a two part process of thinking that typically goes on. And again, it isn't really what goes on, but it's sort of, it is sort of what goes on, and it's a good way to think about how we process information. And unfortunately, I'm not going to get to the second part today. We're just going to introduce it. We're going to talk mostly about the first part. I don't think, because I don't think we'll have enough time to do that. 
Um, but in any case, this is about clinical reasoning. So uh, let's start off with some, with a, with a problem. What did you, I know this is not pediatrics, um, but I'm wondering what you saw. I'll give you another look. Okay, there it is. They both have the same disease. Now, there are people in this room who should recognize that, and there are plenty of people in this room who shouldn't because for reasons that will be obvious once we see it. But I'm not so much interested in knowing what this child has as in knowing what you see. You want to look again? Because <laughs> you really, I, it should be instantaneous. Unhappy kid. Okay, that's the most important thing. This is a sick child. Okay? There's a few other things. That's really important. We see in the emergency department where I've been working. I started out in medicine, but I've been working. I didn't went to emergency medicine, doing that for a long, long, long time. We see lots and lots and lots of kids. We see lots of kids who are sick in the sense that they have sniffles and they feel lousy and they may be a little irritable, but we don't see a lot of kids who look like this or who look like this. There's something more than just I'm miserable there. So what else do you see on this kid? That's the most important. What else do you see? A rash. There's a rash. Good. That's easy. And, and we could even characterize the rash if we wanted. Um, you'll notice that it's all over the body. It even goes into the mouth. And there's something about here that's a little different as well. But OK, a bigger thing I want you to see besides a rash. One other really key thing to help you figure out what this child has. And I'll say it's right here and right there. Mucositis, conjunctivitis. Exactly. So the mucous membranes are all terribly inflamed. And this is typical of a disease that you won't see today because we have a vaccine for it, except in states like this where there are vaccine deniers, right? <laughs> So you may see a little of measles, but this has mostly gone away. When I first started, there was a lot of measles. It was a really bad disease, and it still it can be a bad disease, but mostly it's, it's gone away. And most people practicing 35 years ago would recognize measles very easily. And the reason you recognize it is the same reason you recognize that when you're walking on the street, that's a dog and that's a cat. We don't actually tell ourselves, how do I know it's a dog? Because it has four legs and a tail and it looks... No, we... we, we, we we see the whole thing. And that's called pattern recognition. And pattern recognition is the first part of clinical reasoning, and it's a critically important part of clinical reasoning. If you only made a list of characteristics of things and every time went over, what are the diseases that have these clinical characteristics, and went systematically through them and then did testing to find out, is it really measles, you could never see more than one patient a week wouldn't work. We have to do this sort of jumping ahead. And that's called in the literature about clinical reasoning, it's called heuristics. And heuristics are simply a rule of thumb. It's the way we jump from point A to point B. We use rules of thumb to jump us ahead and say, you know, I see that pattern. It looks like a dog. Now, sometimes it looks like a dog and it isn't. And so what this talk is about a little bit is about 
how we think and why it's important to think that way, but it's also about the ways in which occasionally we get fooled. The second part of what we do after we recognize patterns, and we do this a lot in medicine, is called hypothesis testing. That's when we say, you know what, this could be measles, but it also could be toxic shock syndrome, or it could be Kawasaki's disease, or a few things that cause mucous membranes, make you miserable, cause a fever, look just like this. How do I figure out which one is which? And we often will then go, I'm going to test it. And a lot of this talk, which unfortunately we're not going to get to, is about what are the pitfalls in that thinking? Because there are many ways in which we have now become so dependent on tests without understanding the characteristics of tests that we cause, we not only don't get it right in this patient, but we cause lots of harm. In fact, I believe that our notion of more is better and technology is the answer and tests are objective is actually the, one of the biggest threats that you guys will face in the next 30 years. And that if you don't figure out how applying tests poorly actually causes harm, we're in for big trouble, all of us. Um, this is a place where, uh, where several of your faculty and friends of mine wrote uh, a book called Overdiagnosed. Uh, Gil Welch and, and uh, Lisa Schwartz and Steve Woloshin wrote this book. And if you have, have you all read it? You have to read it. It's really, really important. It's a sort of a companion issue. And by the way, there's another, that's called Overdiagnosed. And it was written after the first book, and it stole its title from a book called Overtreated by Shannon Brownlee. Shannon is not a physician. She's a, um, she's a journalist, a scientist journalist. And she wrote it. It's really about Jack Wenberg, pretty much, and his work. And it's also a terrific book. And the two are companions. And you must... If, if you don't read it, the world is going to end tomorrow. This is, you have to, these are important books, so you have to read them. And they're companions to what I'm going to be saying today. And actually, yesterday I talked a lot about those topics more, and, but I encourage you to read them. But today we're going to get back to this. But what I want you to see from here is that we can get a tremendous amount of information just from a glance. And if we don't get that information, we're never going to be able to practice. If we think it's all a matter of there are five causes of chest pain and you go down a checklist and you, and you use some rule, you're going to get into big trouble. What's the, what's, what, uh, how many of you use rules, clinical decision rules or clinical decision instruments? What do you use them for? Do you, do you use a chest pain rule? Is anyone awake? <laughs> Hello. No, you all are, but here's the deal. It's, there's no wrong answers. It's, there are wrong answers, but it's okay. <laughs> PE. There are PE rules. And how well, do, so like the Wells criteria or the PERC rule or the Geneva rule, how well do they work? So that's a complicated question, but I, I do want to take this a little aside now to talk about so-called rules. We shouldn't call them rules. We should call them decision instruments. And I, I just want to tell you that they don't work very well. Um, they try to standardize our approach. And there's something good about standardizing an approach. And in that sense, they can have some benefit, particularly if we're doing all the wrong things. This can help us back off a little bit. But the fact is, whenever they've been tested against clinical judgment, they do worse. Standard average clinical judgment. A friend of mine always says, well, how do you know 
it, this person's average. Maybe they're terrible. They'll do much better using the instrument. <laughs> That's true, but for, but for the average person, they, they don't help you. And the reason they don't do that is because most of clinical medicine is way too complicated for here are the three things. If they don't have this, they can't have that. It doesn't work that way. And in fact, you all know that because if you've ever read the literature, because every one of those rules starts out, you know how they develop a chest pain rule, the Goldman criteria, whatever you want to name it. You know how they develop it? Take a large database and they start trolling. They look at the database, they look at all the people who ended up with a bad thing and all the people who ended up with a not bad thing, and they say, what are the characteristics that distinguish them? And what's hap what is the truth about that methodology? What, what do you know about that methodology? We look at the people who have a disease, we look at the people who ha don't have a disease, and we see what's different about them. What's the problem with doing that? This is really important. It's part of this talk. When you go fishing in that way, when you don't have a prior probability of disease, that you really think this is X and this is Y, when you just throw a net in the water and you see what comes out, most of what comes out is false positive. And I'm going to show you that in a little bit. But most of the time, when you find something, it's not really true. It's just a characteristic of that data set. For example, in some of the big studies of heart disease with STEMI, they found if you do that, you can prove that response to thrombolytic therapy depends upon what your birth sign is. There are two birth signs that respond well, and the other birth signs don't. Oh, and also, your mother's maiden name, how many letters it has in it. If you want to go looking for chance associations, you will always find them. All you have to do is look at enough. So you guys know about p-values, right? What is a p-value? What is it supposed to say? Let me back off for a second. What does significant mean in English? In, re in regular English, when I say, oh, that's a significant event, what does that mean? Important, Important thank you. <laughs> this is darkness. You're not supposed to be afraid to answer. You can answer. It's OK. So important. And does, does a p-value significant, statistically significant, mean important? I wouldn't be asking if it did. <laughs> There's a clue here. It doesn't mean important. It means nothing like that. Does anybody know what a p-value means? A significant difference. Anybody want to explain it? I'll explain it. Okay. I don't want to embarrass anybody. Um, a, a significant difference is one that is unlikely to be due to chance alone. That's all it means. If you have a large data set, almost everything Will, any two comparisons will be significantly different. All you have to do is have enough numbers. And the reason for that is because in the real world, there are no two things that are exactly identical. No two treatments, no two placebos are exactly identical. You're going to find some difference. And if you look at a large data set of hypertension, for example, you'll find group treatment A lowers blood pressure to 102 over 94, 102 over 74, and treatment B lowers it to 101 over 72, and those are significantly different. And all that means is, there's no real difference. What it means is, if they were exactly the same, you probably wouldn't find a difference that big. If they were really exactly the same treatment. Because they're not exactly the same treatment. It has absolutely nothing to do with important. Nothing. So let's go back here to, um, what was I talking about? <laughs> I don't even remember. Um, 
I, I actually don't remember, so I'm going to have to <laughs> move on. I will remember in a second, but I'm getting older, so I have these moments of, of forgetting. And I, I am wandering off, off topic a little bit, but what, what, I guess what I was talking about is the, the, the chance that if you throw a net in the water, you'll find things. So, and I was going to tell you this thing that may sound stunning to you, which is if you do a, so in medicine, a significant difference is defined as what? You know, in this term of significance, statistically significant. How do we define that? P-value less than 0.05. That means that if the two treatments were exactly the same, there'd be less than a 5% chance that you would find a difference that looks this big if they were exactly identical. It doesn't tell you the difference matters. It doesn't tell you it's important. If I do, instead of one comparison, I'm not comparing A and B, or I'm not comparing A and B for their effect on blood pressure, but I'm comparing it for their effect on blood pressure and their effect on cholesterol and their effect on potassium, and I look at 10 different outcomes. Let's do it a different way. I'm not looking at blood pressure on one day. I'm looking at blood pressure in the first week, blood pressure in the first month, but I do 10 different outcomes. What's the chance if I were to have the same drug Drug A is, is the same drug as drug B. I give them both to 1,000 to patients and I measure the outcomes. They are identical. They're the exact same drug. What's the chance that I'll find a p-value of less than 0.05 if I do 10 different comparisons? 99%. Once you start looking at many different things, you inevitably find things that are bogus. It's inevitable. So it's important to know about when we, for many of the things that you're taught, to understand that looking at random associations, you always find them. Chance, rare things happen all the time. All you have to do is look for enough rare things. <coughs> so we might even talk about that a little bit later. So let's get back to this for a second. And um, notice, there's a lot we can see here, but if we jump to the conclusion this has to be measles, we'll be wrong some of the time. It is measles, but it doesn't always have to be measles. Let me give you a different example that's more familiar to some of you. Here there's a, a throat of a measles kid which had a few Copelix spots. What do we see in this throat? This is more up your alley. It's not in the ICU, but it's, you, you all see this in, in what you do. What is this? What's the pattern here that's important? What do you, what's important to notice about the pattern? I know you know it, but what am I seeing here? You're seeing exudates, right? Those are tonsillar exudates, big swollen tonsils. It's a ratty looking throat, very red, and there's exudates. So what is this? It's strep. Actually, what's the chance that it's strep? So it really depends upon not just this, but some other things. And there's Dr. Centaur, you've all heard of the Centaur criteria, and there's a, a different McIsaac's criteria, however you look at it, you can put a few things together that are a pattern that give you a high risk of strep. If you have all of them, you have about a 70% chance of strep. If you have three out of the four, it's about 40%. If you have none of the four, it's about 1%. What does that tell you? Well, it helps you decide, but even if you got the entire pattern, a lot of them don't have strep. It's not the definitive answer. If it were really important to know whether it was strep, you'd have to do more than just look at this pattern. Now, 
I don't want to go there because I think it's not important to do to know whether it's strep or not, and certainly not important to know with certainty whether it's strep or not. But again, we can look at a pattern. Not only we can, we do all the time. For things that are really critical, I'm making a decision that really matters. I'm going to go to the operating room if it is. The patient's going to die if I miss it. Those are things where we want to have a high level of certainty. Is it strep or not? Am I going to give some antibiotics? That's not, that's not critical to have certainty. We can have much more relaxed thresholds about deciding it. But the first step is to look at the pattern. It's really, really, really important. So if it's really important, what's this talk about? This talk is about cognitive error. And we're not going to get to the second part, the errors that we make with hypothesis testing. We're going to talk about this. So this is, you all know this question, which of these two lines is longer? They're the same, right? You've all seen this before? So, of course, they're the same, but who really believes they're the same? <laughs> so how do we get fooled like that? Why do we see things that are untrue? Well, I'll give you some other examples. What, did, what was that? Yes, yeah, so you guys, this is a trick. You know it's a trick, but if you weren't being tested, you would say it's the United States editor. Because we see what we expect to see, right? And in the same way, what's that say? Paris in the, the spring. And what do you see here? You see this old lady whose chin is over here and she's looking out in this direction. But if I were to cover this part of the slide, you might see the young lady who's looking down into the, out there. If you forget this whole bottom part, you look out there, here's her ear. Two different things you could see from the same picture. Here's a way where you see the young girl a little bit better. And what do you see here? This is just for fun. You see this wonderful vase, right? But you also might see the two men. Here's George Washington and here's Kennedy looking at each other. I love this. This is the same picture. How you present things, framing really matters. There's a couple more, I'll just, uh, I'll just avoid them, but you, you can see them really quickly. Now here's one I love. Which of these two lines is longer? I can, I can tell you as a hint that I've won many, many beers <laughs> over the year, proving that they're the same. But this is really hard to imagine, right? Come on, that, why is this one so much harder to see that they're the same than even that other one? So going back to the other one, why are we fooled? We're fooled by the background noise, right? The, the, not the line itself, but the things attached to the line. The more complex you make it, the easier it is to be fooled. Um, so here's my, my only slides that, I hate slides like this, but um, I, I, I submitted given what we've already seen. I want you to think about why we are fooled. So we see what we expect to see. We try to impose order on what we see so it makes sense. And it depends on a lot of these things, the complexity, where we're looking from, how we frame it. Which of these two lines? <laughs> um, so I'm going to just show you here. This is, again, not an attempt to be exhaustive or academic. And I'm not going to go through all of these things. But I want you to recognize some of them. These are some of the key problems that we have. Um, first impressions really matter. 
we pay much more attention to what we see initially than what we learn later. And in fact, we make that, uh, we also, as we said, Paris in the, the spring, we see what we expect to see. So you see a chest pain patient and you start to put together some things. The person's disheveled and homeless and, and they've been in four times before and you start to see, well, this is a faker or whatever. Um, or you see somebody who fits a different pattern and you start to see that and you start to confirm that because there's something called confirmation bias, which is that once you have your first impression, there's huge amounts of psych psychology studies which show that you now start putting in other information that is contrary to what was the obvious first step and people ignore it routinely. Um, if I say the patient has chest pain and it's substernal and it goes to the left arm, you're all thinking it's cardiac. And then I say, well, so what brings it on? It's when, it's when I cough um, and I'm not short of breath and um, it hurts right here, we ignore all that. Because we know that this is cardiac and those other things, yeah, well, you can have cardiac chest pain that is atypical. But if you start out the other way, it's pleuritic chest pain, um, it doesn't matter how many cardiac things it has on it, we start, no, no, this is not cardiac. The same exact history presented in opposite order gets very, very different responses. And in the emergency department where I work, where we have a calamity of our misinterpretation of chest pain. There's a, a national epidemic, and you guys know about it too, because you have something called an OBS ward. Do you have an OBS ward? You get admitted to observation? So I always like to say that if you want to know which chest pain patients don't have anything important, it's, all you have to do is go to the OBS ward, because there's nobody in the OBS ward who has anything. And the reason for that is because nobody would ever admit a patient to the OBS ward if you had any, even, even the slightest concern that they had heart disease, which is why all the large literature series show that one out of a thousand patients who are admitted to OBS in the United States actually proved to have any disease. Now, that's a bigger social problem, cultural problem, than what we're talking about. It has to do with all of our fears and why we take people we know are well and, and do all these bizarre things. And by the way, when I say they don't have anything important, I mean they don't have anything clinically important. A lot of them have a plaque. The plaque didn't cause their chest pain. It's irrelevant. It's not going to hurt them. But we look for it and we find it and then we feel good that we've, didn't we do a good job? But in any case, all of these things are really, have tremendous effect on how we behave. Um, I'm not going to go through all of these. You can look at them yourselves and see what I'm talking about. <coughs> There's a wonderful, famous psychology study, which some of you may know about, where you take a bunch of people and you get them in a room and you put a gorilla, a guy dressed in a gorilla suit walks through and everybody goes, holy mackerel, what's that? And then you give them the same people or a different group of people and you give them a task to do where they have to decide, you're looking at the screen and every third one's going to be red and you have to point out which one is red and you're looking at that screen and they have the gorilla come in the room Nobody notices. The gorilla starts banging. Nobody notices. The gorilla walks up and down going like this. Nobody notices. Uh, does that happen in medicine? Are we busy paying attention to what we're doing? So there are a lot of ways in which we fool ourselves. 
I like this one. This is one of my favorite sayings. I, I'd like to be credited with it someday. Schizophrenics are immortal. What does that mean? Well, let me ask you this. What's the greatest impediment to a new diagnosis? Because the two are related. An old diagnosis. Once you have a diagnosis, that explains everything. So in the emergency department, somebody comes in and they're drunk. And they have, they're acting really funny. Well, he's drunk. And I like to say that makes him immortal because a drunk, whatever he comes in with, we say, oh, he's drunk, which means he can never have a real disease, even though drunks have more of every real disease there is than anybody else. But we are so blinded by what we see. We see that they're schizophrenic. That's crazy. It's a crazy story. It may be a crazy story. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you, right? <laughs> so um, this is a real huge, huge problem. I love this. I told you a little bit about, about Chance. I just thought about her yesterday. And I haven't seen her for 20 years, and she called. Who's had that experience? That's a bit, months. I haven't talked, and then, why is that? How did that happen? Was that a miracle? Why did that happen? It's for the reason I told you about throwing a net in the water. Because you've thought about a lot of people. Over the years, you've thought about a lot of people, and there are a lot of people you know, and every once in a while, a chance association happens. If you just... I, this was a true story of one of the first patients I ever saw when I was on a third-year student on medicine. I remember I was interviewing this guy who was being admitted, and, and his complaint was, I was reaching in the closet, and I must have strained something because this lump came out under my arm. I thought, like, wow, I wonder what you do that causes a lump in your arm. <laughs> and, of course, he had Hodgkin's, and, and the lump didn't come out then, so that's when he noticed it. Coincidences... Are often fool us. In the emergency department, we see lots of people who have the runs, right? They have GI problems. And I've never seen a patient who didn't say, oh, and, and it happened after I, ate, after I ate Chinese yesterday. Well, somebody, you ate something yesterday. <laughs> and we always ascribe it to that. Um, I want to ask you this. What is the chance that you're sitting here today? Think about the universe for a second. How did you get here? Well, let me ask you this. I, I know this is going to be embarrassing a little bit, but you know, your mom and your dad had to meet each other. They had to sort of like each other. I don't know if they liked each other, but they had, to, they had to have sex, right? And there's a lot of eggs and a lot of sperm. And if it had been any one of the other ones or any different night that they got together and pregnant, you wouldn't be here. And that's about a one in... 100,000 chance, something like that, if you add those up, or more than that. But go back a second. Wait, wait a second. What about, let's go to the year 746 BC. You had to have many generations of ancestors had the same process. They, they met each other, they had a kid, it was that sperm and that egg, and they didn't get die in childbirth, and they weren't struck down in war. And in those days, they all died in childbirth. But they survived, and they made it through. And then they trekked from, from one part of the world to another part of the world where they met another branch of your family. The, the coincidences for that are astonishing. You don't have to go back 12 generations. Go back two generations. The chance of your being here is essentially zero. <laughs> the chance of somebody being here is one. 
You just happen to be the one. Strange, strange, strange coincidences happen all the time because things happen. And there's a zillion things that happen. This is important because we're always fooled by this notion of that can't be. The whole concept of p-values is crazy, actually. We shouldn't use them. <laughs> Some of the best epijournals have stopped using them. But they're really they're the wrong way to think about the world for a lot of reasons, including that they have nothing to do with what's important. Significance has nothing to do with importance. And it fools us all the time in both directions, not just over-calling significance, but also under-calling it. That's a different lecture. <coughs> Again, I'll just let you read this. It's very different if you say to somebody, a 95% chance it'll be fine. If you say, well, one in 20, you could die. It'll sound very different. You want, you know this, because when you're pitching something to someone else, you're attending, or a consultant, and you want them to do X, you pitch it the way that sounds, it could work, it's probably gonna work. Or the other way. I can't send them home. <laughs> A 5% chance he could die. How do patients take these numbers, by the way? What's their risk profile compared to ours? That is, if you tell a doctor there's a 2% chance that the child could have meningitis, this child who has a fever could have meningitis, and then you tell the mom there's a 2% chance your child could have meningitis, do they respond the same way? How do they respond? Who's, who's more scared of those numbers? The doctors, by a lot. We are much less willing to let somebody go home with low risk than a patient, including the mom of a child. And the only exception to that, and this has been studied many different ways, many different times. What would you do? There's a 2% chance that this is an MI. The patient is like, oh, I'll go home. If I get worse, I'll come back. Well, not every patient, of course not every patient, but a lot of patients, even majority patients. The doctors, I can't send them home. No way, that's too dangerous. Somebody will sue me. Um, the same is true with, it's your, the only exception is, at the end of the study, you say to the doctor, what if it was your kid? And then they act just like the mom. <laughs> oh, it's my kid. Yeah, I'll take him home and I'll see you later and if I have to come back, I'll come back. We're terribly, terribly, terribly risk-averse. Uh, in the emergency department, we get, we get fooled all the time. It's not just how you, your first impression, it's the first impression of the tech at triage. The tech says, oh, send him back to recess for his chest pain. We all start saying, get an EKG, get a troponin, start doing coronary angiograms. I don't care how negative he is, admit him to Hobbes. We can't send him home. He's well. That's how I know I admit him to Hobbes. But if the tech instead says, you know what, I think this is low-risk chest pain, send him over to fast track. It's probably costochondritis. The doctors never admit him to Hobbes. Not never, but almost never. You have to have a big sign that says, he's wrong. It is an MI. Other than that, it's like, oh, it's crushing chest pain. But you know what? He's, he's young. It's, it can't be anything. 
And so we're fooled in tremendous ways. Uh, in, I'm not going to talk about that because it's really an emergency department thing. But how we talk to anybody else that we're talking to is, reflects all of this stuff. And there are lots of other ones that I, again, I just, I'll, let, I'll give you a minute to look at. But there are ways we fool ourselves. If you, if you have flip a coin and you get five heads in a row, what's going to happen the next flip? It's 50%, right? This flip is not in any way affected by all the previous flips. But if you just saw three patients in a row who have a pulmonary embolism, the next patient comes in and they got pain and shortness of breath, and they were just on a long flight, and their leg is, one leg is swollen, and they have cancer, and they, they have a sign that says, I have a you say, no, it can't be. I just had three pulmonary embolism. This guy does not have a PE. Because that's human behavior. This is not... It's not your bad. This is how we behave. We are, this, is, we're, this is hardwired into us. <clears throat> Just remember that uncommon presentations of common disease is far more common <coughs> than the textbook presentation of a rare disease. We get this wrong all the time. Now, what to do about all this is a different story, and we'll talk about that for a second. And I want to... Go back to language. I told you that statistically significant means different than significant. So does the word bias in English mean something very different than it means in research, in science. What does bias mean in English? Prejudgment. Exactly. I think I have a stereotype about certain things, and I prejudge according to that stereotype, and I misinterpret information because of my prejudgment. It may be deliberate, it may be a little bit unconscious, whatever, but it has to do with prejudgment. Um, bias in, in science doesn't mean that. When you say there's a bias study, what do you mean? It's important you to know this because you read these and nobody ever bothered to teach you that bias doesn't mean the same thing and significant doesn't mean the same thing. There's a million words in medicine that don't mean what they mean in English. And we're always fooled. So do you know what, anybody know what bias means in a study? Bias means the non-random introduction of error into the results of a study. Think about that for a second. Non-random is really important. Any study can find results that are not true just because of chance. We already talked about that. There's a lot of chance things that happen in any study. You do the best study in the world, you'll find things that are wrong just because of chance. And the only good thing about p-values is it reminds us that we should think about chance as could it be that this happened not really but just by chance. Okay? So non-random is important. What do I mean by introduction of error? I got the wrong results because the way I did the study rigged the study. It was a systematic change in the outcome based on the study. So let, there's a really easy way to think about that. Supposing I want to know whether the people on this side of the room are faster than the people on this side of the room. And I want to design a study. How could I design a study to tell which group is faster? Come on, you can do this. It's not that hard. I can have them race. Exactly. I could have this group race that group. So where would I have them race? I could have them raised from the, from the stay the, between there and there. But what if I wanted to prove that this group was faster? 
I could have this group run from there down to here, and this group run from there up to there. It's a non-level playing field. That would be biased in the English language sense. I was deliberately trying to screw up the results. But I could also do that just because I didn't think very well. I just said, okay, you guys get up there and run down here, and you guys run up there, and the results would be distorted. It would be non-random systematic introduction of error into the results, even though I wasn't deliberately trying to do that. And it turns out that happens all the time in studies, because it isn't so obvious that one's running uphill and one's running downhill. And it even turns out the really dirty news is that if you really try to, if you try to, to create a really good study, you will introduce that bias into the study. It's impossible to avoid it. Because every time you try to fix one bias, another bias pops up. And actually, good researchers, what they do is they try to look for all the potential biases and then end up with a study which biases against their hypothesis. Not so much that they're they can't find anything, but that if anything, the results are going to be worse than I thought it would be. And if it still turns out I'm right, then I have pretty good evidence that it's right. But bias is a big deal. But in medicine, there's not only all these biases that I told you about, but there's also the English language bias. We treat people differently based on gender and ethnicity. There's huge amounts of information about that. I don't think it's because somebody says, I want to treat black people different than white people. I mean, maybe there are some, but I think mostly that's not that. Mostly it's... There are much deeper-seated reasons. Many, many years ago, I had a fellow I did a study with where we looked at treatment of pain in the emergency department from a broken bone. So it's not like they had pain, back pain and we didn't trust them. They had a broken bone. And we looked at the treatment of pain in white patients and the treatment of pain in Hispanic patients. Now, as a warning, I've got to tell you, where I work, UCLA, we have lots and lots of Hispanic patients, that's why we chose that as the comparison group. We also have lots of Hispanic nurses and lots of Hispanic doctors. And what did we find? The white patients got more medicine quicker, higher doses, better medicine. And we also found that it was true of the Hispanic doctors. The white patients got more medicine. Now, and when we did other studies, which showed that it had nothing to do with the patient's perception of the pain or the patient's the way that they presented their pain, because it had nothing to do with the doctors who gave different doses rated the patient's pain the same. Now, we did some studies to try to figure out what it is, and I, this is off topic, so I'll just briefly mention to you that we came to the conclusion that the real reason for this was not that we were trying to treat Hispanic patients worse, but because we treat patients who we identify with differently than others. Because with pain in particular, if you don't identify with the patient, you don't, notice, you don't really notice their pain. If you're asked, how bad is it? You say, oh yeah, that's an eight. But you don't really notice, you're not worried, you're not feeling, oh my God, that patient's in pain, I better do something about it. And how was it the Hispanic doctors and nurses didn't do different? Because they actually identified more with the medical team than they did with the Hispanic team. They were part of the medical culture. That's how they saw themselves. They had been acculturated for so long that they were now part of this majority group, not the, the group they came from. We did a lot of work to suggest that that actually is true. But that's a separate point. I just want to tell you that that was one of many, many studies that have subsequently done. Our study, which was the first in this particular way, in emergency department pain, has been repeated 100 times now, and everyone finds the same thing. It doesn't matter which minority subgroup you use. And it's been shown in cancer treatment and in heart disease treatment and 
everywhere else you want. And it's also true for, ethnic, for um, gender, where women mostly get different treatment than men. And I, I hesitate to say, to say worse. I would rather say less treatment, since less is often better. <laughs> Ironically, <laughs> it actually turns out better some of the time. <coughs> but this is another thing that I want you to really pay attention to. All these groups get very different treatment and often worse treatment. Here, that's a big deal. I'm a pretty well known in my field for saying that we, this is, this is um, terrible when we ever even use these terms and ever think about patients in those ways. And we have fooled ourselves incredibly into thinking that this category exists, even though there are addicts for sure. But our, the way we look at patients as enemies and liars and cheaters, we always get it wrong and we harm people all the time by doing this. But these people all get different treatment and worse treatment. People who come back to the emergency department or your clinic get a different type of treatment. He's here again. Just like sort of at McDonald's. At McDonald's you go in the third day in a row and they, they never say to you, what are you doing here? Didn't I give you a hamburger yesterday? Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a big one too, right? I don't know what it is. So I get, make up some crazy name like chronic fatigue syndrome, and then we all wink at each other. <laughs> what, is, what do all these people have in common besides the front line? Maybe besides this, not, maybe not, but what do all these people have in common? I'll say the extreme version of it is it's immortal. They're all immortal. These guys are all immortal. We never believed them. But what do they have in common? Some situations that make our job difficult. They, they make it hard on us, and therefore we're uncomfortable with them, and often we don't like them. We don't empathize with them. They're not the white person who has the broken bone who I'm worried about their pain. There's somebody who's the other who I don't really want to feel related to. And I find reasons to, often subconscious reasons, to exclude them from all the things I would do for the person I do empathize with. Now, the second part of the talk, which I don't have time to get to, is about how we use tests and how the same thing is true about testing as what I've just been telling you about pattern recognition. And this is a really fun, fun thing, which goes for an hour, about the same thing. We have to be able to know how to use tests, but the way we mostly use tests is terribly wrong and gets us into trouble all the time. And I promise you that unless you know what your prior probability of disease is before you do a test and what the test characteristics of the, of the test are, what do I mean by test characteristics? There are two things about any test that are really important. That are so sensitivity and specificity, that's one of them. And the other name for that is accuracy. The combined together is accuracy. How do they tell you the truth? That's what accuracy means. There's another characteristic of tests that's really, really critically important that we routinely ignore. Probabilities. 
No, that's, that has to do with how you interpret the test, but it's not about the test itself. That affects how the predictive value of the test, which is critically important, and that's part of this talk, but I'm not going to get to it, but, but something about the test itself, and that's called its reliability. It's entirely different than accuracy. What is reliability? It's test, retest, consistency. If I show you the same x-ray three times, will you always read it the same? If I show you three the same x-ray, will you read it the same? And which of our tests has good reliability in medicine? Just about none of them. Well, that's not true. Your cholesterol comes up as a number. We can all read, we, most of us will read that 253, we won't read 700. We'll read the same number. But most of our tests, particularly our more sophisticated tests, are tremendously dependent on the, the reader. And there's huge literature about how, for just about any test you want, that when you give the same expert reader the same test over and over and over again, but they don't know it's the same one, they're reading the same CT scan, they read it differently all the time. And when a radiologist says to you, I request clinical correlation, I need the story, that's actually asking for prior probability of disease. That's what they want to know. They want to know what to look for. And that's entirely appropriate. But the truth is, it also determines greatly how they read the study. And there are studies that show that. You give them with a certain history the same test, and they read it one way, and you give it with a different history, and they read it a different way. And that's true for our most sophisticated tests and our most sophisticated reviewers. And I'm going to give you one example of this, because I have a few minutes, and then I'll stop. And I also want to talk about what do we do about all this. But I want to, the, all I want to say without proving it to you, there's a whole hour of proving it to you, that if we don't understand how to use tests, we get them wrong. And to understand it, you need to know about the test characteristics, accuracy and reliability, and you need to know prior probability. And the truth is, we don't know prior probability. We're making that up. That's a judgment. So when we think we're going to substitute tests for judgment, because I'm just a beginner, I don't have judgment, you can't do a test without starting at a starting point. It has no meaning without knowing what the prior probability is, and that's all based on judgment. Tests do not take the place of judgment. If you're, a, if you're an intern and you're trying to learn, I don't have clinical judgment, yes, that's why you're in a training program. And if you're 30 years out and you say, I don't know, that's when you get help. The most important thing that any doctor can have is, the most important thing that any doctor can know is, I don't know this. Not what you do know, what you don't know. What do I need help for? Anyway, I'm going to give you one, before I get to what do we do about this, I want to give you one other example. There's one other important thing you have to know about a test, any test. When I said accuracy, what do I mean? Does it tell the truth? So if I want to know whether a test tells the truth, does a CT angiogram tell me the truth about whether it's a pulmonary embolism or not, what's the truth? How do I know what the truth is? Great. So there's something called a gold standard or criterion standard. We have to know, does the test uh, track the gold standard well? So what's the gold standard for pulmonary embolism? Standard angiography. It's actually not very good, standard angiography. It misses at least 5 to 10%, and overcalls 
at least that many as well, compared to a different gold standard, the gold standard of, what's the other, the really gold standard? Autopsy. So autopsy is the gold standard. It's not a terribly practical gold standard. <laughs> I, I'm really worried about you, ma'am. I'm afraid we're going to have to do an autopsy. <laughs> but it's way worse than that. It's way worse than that. Why is it worse than that? Because, um, supposing I want to know whether or not pulmonary embolism causes, what's the incidence of prevalence of, uh, no, incidence, incidence of um, chest pain, pleuritic chest pain in people with a pulmonary embolism. Or I want to know what, how many have, have um, tachycardia, or how many are tachypneic, or anything I want to know. So I use a gold standard an autopsy, and I look at all the people that had a PE and all the people who didn't have a PE, and I then calculate up. What's the problem with that? I'm looking at PEs big enough to kill you. The percentage of people who have a PE big enough to kill you who get tachycardia, it might be very different than a PE that isn't big enough to kill you. It's asking the wrong question, right? And there's something else that's really wrong, and I already gave you the clue. It has to do with reliability. If you give three expert pathologists the same exact autopsy, you get five different interpretations. <laughs> That's well proven. It's objective. No, it isn't. Oh, there's worse. It gets worse than that. If you give the same pathologist, it's been proven. They read it differently each time. Oh, it's worse than that. There's a lot of clots that occur at the time of death. You have a clot there. It had nothing to do with why you died. Oh, and we also um, dissolve some clots at the time of death. You had a PE, you don't have it anymore. So what is the real gold standard? There isn't any. It's the one we make up. It's the one we think is the best. We used to say the gold standard for MI when I started was an SGOT. <laughs> and then it, it, we knew it was lousy. And along came CPK and then CPKMD. And those were really a big deal because they were they really... We changed the gold standard. Why did we change it? Because it seemed to make sense. People who died of heart disease more often had an abnormal CK than they did the other, and the CKMB even more. It, it tracked better. But we were using a different gold standard, which is, what do you think? What do you think he died of? There was no objectivity to that. And then along came troponin, right? And when troponin was compared to CK, CKMD, and they looked at large series of patients who did or didn't have an MI, whenever they disagreed, CKMB was the gold standard. We're looking at this new test. And they disagreed a lot of the time. What is the appropriate scientific conclusion when you're doing a test and you're comparing something to the gold standard and you disagree, what should you say? Say the new test is wrong. That's what you're supposed to say. It doesn't track with the gold standard. What did we say? We said the gold standard is wrong. We think the proponent's better. Now, anytime we, they disagree, we're now, by fiat, executive decision, saying the CK is wrong. And that was, had something to do with, we had this idea of a different gold standard. How the patients really come out? It looks like the proponent tracked that better. But all of this is made up. It's based on judgment, too. There is no gold standard, and if you think about it, some of the gold standards probably are pretty close to true. All of the things I said to you about autopsy, yes, those are all true, but still, autopsy is reasonably good gold standard. But what's the gold standard for all the studies about BNP 
and, and congestive heart failure. It was clinical judgment was the gold standard. If you read those studies, it was what did the, what did the cardiologist think at the end of the day? And there's lots of studies of BNP which look, use that gold standard, a lot of them, but only two of them used more than one cardiologist and reported to us what they thought. And in both of the studies, the cardiologists disagreed with each other about the truth 20% of the time. The whole BNP thing is based on a house of cards. It's a myth, <coughs> which is why it doesn't work. In, which it doesn't work. That's a different lecture, but it's a really terrible test. Partly because it's all made up. So what do you do with all of this? So the first thing is, I don't have time to tell you about testing, but with testing, one of the first questions you have to ask is, what's the gold standard? Is it one that I, do I know anything about this test? And is it based on a reasonable gold standard? One that I think is probably reasonably close to true. Like a troponin, I think it's reasonable gold standard, even though it's not perfect. That's one thing. Then do I know the test characteristics? Is it reliable? Is it accurate? Is it sensitive? Is it specific? And then I have to ask is, did I apply it in a rational way where I started out with a prior probability? Because I could show you, that if you don't, you get it wrong all the time. That's about hypothesis testing. Let's go back to all these cognitive errors we talked about. It's, you cannot practice medicine without heuristics, without rules of thumb, without jumping to conclusions. But we get it wrong a lot of the time. So what do we do about that? That's the last thing I'll say to you. What do you do about that, all these problems I told you? We stop being human. No, we can't do that. What do we do? And unfortunately, I, there is, there's no easy answer. I can't tell you what you do, and I can't prove what I'm about to say is true, but here's what I believe. I believe you have to do this process that's technically called metacognition, which means you step outside of yourself and you evaluate how you've behaved. You look back at yourself and you say, what can, what, where, which things did I jump to? What did I think that was based on my first impression? Did I actually pay attention to the second and third and fourth? How many things did I discount because they didn't fit what I wanted to believe? That's a really hard job to do. But I don't think it's impossible. And I don't think it's a panacea, but I think it's critical. I also think it's critical that, you, that we all be humble and we understand why we sometimes get it wrong. And we don't think that every time you get it wrong, you're a bad person and made a mistake, which is an old tradition in medicine that's terrible. But that we understand that as human beings, we do all these processes. And if we want to do better, we have to look at them critically. Any thoughts, questions, comments? Yes, sir. Um, so if the early part of your talk is a fairly focused question, I understand your concerns about Speak loud so everybody can. I understand your concerns about p-values, and you, you threw in a comment that some journals are now not even using them. How do you determine importance or significance uh, if you don't have some, albeit poor, objective way to do that? So don't use the word objective. This has nothing to do with objective, okay? Um, that's a good question. So one of the things we have to understand that chance plays a role in all sorts of things. And there are better ways to evaluate chance. But most importantly, what they have to do with is the notion of 
Um, so first of all, confidence intervals is, is very closely linked to, to the same concept of p-values, but looks at it in a very different way that misleads us much less. What is the likely range of results that this suggests might be true? And even that has a lot of words like likely and suggests and may. One of my favorite statements is whenever you read something like, drug X may be wonderful for disease Y, you should re understand that that is the logical exact equivalent of saying drug X may not be useful in Y. May and may not. So there's a lot of hedging there. So one thing is to look at the idea of confidence. It asks the question in a very different way. It asks, what's the likely results, the likely truths, in what range is it going to be? And that also has limitations, because it's 95% likely. Who says 95% is the right number? But it's way better than saying, are these exactly the same thing? Which is a meaningless question. Um, the, even more important is Bayesian thinking. What, where I started out with the chance of I had this hypothesis, what did I think the prior probability was? And after I'm done with this, now where am I? I used to think there was a 50% chance that this drug was useful, and based on these results, I think it's now we probably can say with 65% likelihood it's useful within, when I, and what I mean by useful is it is at least 12% better, or whatever I designed it as. So you, it asks, if you think about p-values, it asks a crazy question. It doesn't ask, is this this much better? Is it importantly better? It never asks that. It asks, are they exactly the same? Bayesian thinking can ask you questions like, what's the chance this is 30% better? What's the chance that if you do this, there'll be mortality will decrease from 10% to as low as 3%? So there are mathematical ways to incorporate probability that don't ask crazy questions. Yes, sir. Say something about outside pressures. So we stand step back and look at how we've done something in that we may have may need to rethink that, but in the process of rethinking it, other people will be annoyed, oh you need to repeat this or you need to do that, we've got other people waiting. So could you Sure and I so this is part of a larger series of talks which address all of these things. And I think one of the critical points is to say is that changing, that a lot of this has to do with culture. A lot of how we think is how we were brought up to think. We have these basic ideas. First impressions are important. Your first day in medical school when they start tell, telling you about p-values or whatever it is, and you start believing those things, it's very hard later to go back and challenge them. And we're not alone. So if you start to challenge things, but you're the only one, it's going to be very hard to change anything. So what I've been doing is talking about this for 30 years. And when I first talked about it, I was, you know, a pest and, and nobody even, I never got invited to see anything. And now I get big audiences all over the world. You know, uh, things have changed slowly, but the problem's still there. We have to all start thinking differently. And when I say we all, I don't mean just doctors or just doctors and nurses. I mean patients. When a patient wants something because we've taught them that it's really important. MRI is a great test. It's better. More is better. Earlier is better. Screening is good. All these things that turn out to be myths. Um, death is optional. It's part of American culture now. Um, you can't fix that in a day. So I'm not trying to tell you to be, you know, to fight with windmills. But we'll never change things unless we start changing things. So part of it is questioning, asking our residents, to, why are you thinking that? Does that make sense? What's the basis for it? Asking our colleagues that, asking ourselves that. And gradually, I, 
you know, it's not hopeless. Our world changes very slowly, but there are some things that change for the better. And so that's a very superficial answer to a really important question, but I don't think you can just insist we do it right, because that doesn't work, but you have to start insisting that we, we get each other to think. I'm just going to interject, <laughs> because alas, the hour has passed. And, and you can see, I think many of us um, want to continue thinking about thinking. Uh, but in order for people to, who need to move on, move on, sure. be willing to stay. And I'm happy to stay. Sure, I have no problem. Sure. Great. Thank you.